my prior profession was um, in the medical profession. And so I used to ask that question all the time. Why is it that um, to treat diabetes, um, to treat hi hypertension, obesity was always through medication and not through a prescription of fresh fruits and vegetables of diet? And a lot of it boils down to, pharma to the pharmaceutical companies and who's being paid. Um, I, you know, I can always imagine a day whereby um, the hospitals are out of business, the pharmaceutical companies are out of business, um, food pantries and soup kitchens are out of business because we're starting to live healthy lifestyle. And again, we have to look at uh, the food system in essence is a business. Uh, someone is making money on the backs of, of, of poor um, or poor people. I always said that because um, if that wasn't um, true, then you wouldn't see hospitals and pharmaceuticals companies making billions and billions of dollars. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard farmer and activist Karen Washington describing one of the many injustices taking place in our food system that fuel the cycle of inequity that we are all faced with addressing. Before we hear more from Karen, we want to encourage you to visit blackfarmerfund.org where you can follow along with the work that she and others have undertaken to keep and grow land ownership in the black farming community. Now let's get back to the conversation between myself and Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm. So I'm joined today by Karen Washington. I'm actually really excited about this, Karen. You're a personal hero of mine. You're the owner of Rise and Root Farm in New York City, and you're just a leader to so many in the food justice movement for decades now, really. Um, hi, Karen. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm excited and thanks for the accolades, but I'm very humbled by it. Well, you've done such an amazing job bringing to light all the racial injustices in our food system. And I would just love to start with your personal journey to farming and how you initially connected to the land. Wow, that's a long story. I think I've been asked that question millions and millions of times. So if people follow me, they'll hear the same story because I didn't come from any sort of farming background. My parents weren't farmers. My grandparents weren't farmers. And it wasn't until um, I moved to the Bronx and had a backyard that I decided that I wanted to... Um, grow some food. And it was the tomato that really changed my world because back in the day, I hated tomatoes. I didn't know where my food came from. It came from the grocery store. What else? My mom was a good cook. That's all I knew really about food. But when I put that seed in the ground and nourished that uh, plant and saw that the tomato was red, hello, red, that I bit into it and it was so flavorful that I said, oh, I'm hooked. And then I wanted to grow everything. And what also was occurring at that time across the street was an empty lot. And for so many of us, empty lots were a signal of really of environmental racism because it was full of garbage and drug activity. But three years later, I was able to, um, with the community, turn that empty lot into a community garden. So that's when I got my taste of really gardening. And so for the last 30 years, I've really been um, looking at the food system, growing food. And in 2014, I gave up my day job, which was a physical therapist, and went on a journey with uh, three of my friends up and down the Hudson Valley. Finally came to the um, Chester Agricultural Center in Chester, New York, and were able to secure three acres of land. And so we formed the Rise and Root Farm up in Chester. So um, here I am. Still farming. So how long do you have to drive to get to Rise and Root? Well, it's really for the night. I tell people it's faster for me to go from my house to the Bronx to Chester than from my house to Brooklyn. It's an hour and 15 minutes. But um, uh, pre-COVID, I would stay up there at Jane and Michaela's house. I would stay over during the week and come home on the weekend. So um, 
But right now, that is I'm going so to... difficult when you're farming to be away from the spot. You know, we were renting for a long time and had to do that. It was just a 10 minute drive and it, it felt like too much. You know, you've got to make all these little irrigation adjustments and, you know, raise the tunnels, lower the tunnels, raise them up again, depending on the clouds and the weather. So uh, do you have some help up there? Or how do you make that yeah, work? Yeah, definitely. Because Jane and Michaela and Lori, they live up there. So they live Perfect. up there. They live within walking distance of the farm. And so, yeah, um, yeah we... We work it out. We work it out fine. Thank goodness. My origin story is very similar to yours. I tasted a sun gold cherry tomato and I was like, that, what is this? This isn't even a tomato. You know, this it's is nothing candy. like the grocery store tomato. It's candy. Yeah. <laughs> and then my privileged daughter got to eat strawberries before we got to the sun gold patch. And she thought the sun golds like were sour in comparison to the strawberries. So she never liked tomatoes because she thought strawberries tasted better. Oh, so <laughs> I was lucky to be able to give that food to her growing up. So I I want to touch a little bit on, you know, the, those that have, you've inspired that are now an inspiration to others like Leah Penniman and Onika Abraham that I've interviewed said, you know, you were their inspiration and now they've become thought leaders themselves. And I'm, I'm curious how that makes you feel. Uh, they call me Mama K now and I embrace that. <laughs> I embrace that uh, name, Mama K. I have been so just so overwhelmed with pride of seeing so many young people really um, become a force um, in this movement, become very vocal, standing up um, for injustices that they see. And it's so um, interesting that a lot of them are women. Something about women is the women generation, women power that are really leaving, leading this movement. And I'm just so, so proud. I have three other young prospects that um, I'm looking at and I can see within the next year or so, they're also going to be busting at the seams and really um, being more vocal in their um, quest for equal justice, especially in food and farming. So um, I'm happy, you know, like I said, I'm Mama K. I, I, I'm proud by I'm proud taking on that that name. And again, I just like to say, you know, I'm not doing anything that anyone else um, would do. There are a lot of elders just like myself that are really trying to pass on the knowledge. So um, I'm proud of them. Who inspired you? You know what? People ask me that question. I, I, you know, I have to say my parents and I have to, the reason why I say that, because both of my parents died at a very young age. We were a family of four. So my mother died at 60. My father died at 68 and my brother died at 54. And um, when, you know, when I tell people or people see who I am, I really want to make sure that they understand where I came from, how I was brought up. My parents, my mom and my dad were very great influences in my life on how they brought myself and my brother up, taught us values. Um, and so I want to make sure that I acknowledge them on whenever I'm asked that question about who inspires me because they're not here, um, but they provided the groundwork for me to be the person that I am. And so um, thanks for asking that question. I just want to give my yeah, parents props. I feel that way too. My parents always said to, you know, follow what's in your heart when it came to your profession. And that's always, that's sometimes, you know, a little resentful. It's like, it would have been a lot easier to have just made some money, you know, <laughs> <laughs> had to go be a farmer. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah, we got to give credit for that though. Yeah. It was so ironic. I remember, you know, I grew up, um, I was a tomboy growing up and my mother always used to say, Karen, how come when you come from school, you know, you're not like the other girls, your, your bangs are this way, your ponytails are that way, your shirt is from out of your skirt. You know what? You look like a farmer. And she always used to say that growing up. And now, mom, look at me, mom. See? <laughs> was at me. she saying that as an insult? <laughs> no, she, no, she really was. She was trying to get me to be, you know to be more refined, but I just couldn't because I had so much fun just playing, you know, playing, playing um, sports. I just had so much fun. I had a great childhood. And so, but uh, at the end of the day, I know my mom and my, my father and my brother are smiling down on me. I'm very, very proud. I'm pretty sure they are. Doing what you always felt was in you, huh? Yes. So how do you convert a, an empty lot into a fertile garden? I mean, what is that process? 
Yeah, so it's it takes a process because in many municipalities and many cities, um, you know, we have to really look at the soil because in um, cities that are close to the highways or uh, buildings that had lead at one time, you have to make sure, first of all, I know I can speak for uh, New York City, um, that uh, we have to take the old soil out, put down a barrier and bring in fresh topsoil and compost. And that's happened in my garden. My garden now is 33 years. So you can imagine now 33 years um, and how the soil is. Uh, we've had soil tests and it's really, really remarkable out, out of, out, at uh, 30 years being in production. I continuing to add compost every year to it. Uh, our soil is really, really rich in organic matter. And I think that's really, really important as people think about um, farming and gardening in cities to make sure that soil fertility is very, very important. Uh, the soil is organic. It is a living thing. And so we have to make sure that we treat it that way. And so composting has been very, very instrumental in really bringing in richness in the soil in the city. Too bad because of COVID and budget cuts, um, the city just stopped the composting initiative, but hopefully fingers are cr crossed is that so many people, both the public and private sector are finding ways to bring that back. Uh, I think it's very, very important that, um, we live in a city that that waste doesn't go into landfills, uh, that we can turn that or organic matter into something that's really rich and really important, um, as part of, uh, environmental you know, justice and, and, and really thinking about the whole ecosystem at large. So, um, yeah, 33 years in the Garden of Happiness. Uh, so, um, again, uh, we always advise people who really start for the first time in cities and that, first of all, know the history of that lot. You know, was it, um, um, were banded buildings placed on it, um, you know, and have that soil tested? And then, you know, what you can do is, like I said, you know, um, talk to municipalities to bring in fresh topsoil and compost and the rest uh, will take care of itself. I actually did something similar when I got started, brought in a bunch of compost and it had persistent herbicides in it. It was from manure. And when the cows eat the pasture that's been sprayed with a broadleaf specific herbicide, it is like a hormone in that parts per billion stay through the digestive gut of the cow, through the composting process and my tomatoes. Uh, and, you know, there's certain crops that were affected and certain crops that yeah. weren't. So we knew with that, they call it a bioassay, that it was an herbicide. It was just shocking to me that contamination at so, so, so the smallest doses could affect. And it just raised my awareness of pollutants and how, and, and you don't really get this until it's affected you personally in some way. You know, I didn't have a tomato crop for five years or a pepper crop, you know, yeah. I just grew cucumbers because they didn't react to it. And so it was this huge awareness of, you know, the use of things and how long they can last in our environment. I'm wondering if you've had any of those personal stories too, where you realize our effect on, on the environment from things we do. Well, I think, you know, I live in the Bronx um, and, uh, we have high, high incidence of asthma. A lot of municipalities, especially if you live in an environment where you have constant movement of trucks going in and out. And I think yeah. that's one of the biggest challenges that a lot of inner cities have. And that is uh, high incidence of asthma because of the traffic. And so the pollutants that are constantly in the air, um, you know, I think what this COVID has really done is really realize how when, you know, we had um, a period of time when we didn't use our cars, how all of a sudden, you know, the air started to feel fresh and it was breathable. And so it just brings to the point how important um, air quality is. And when you live in a city where it's constant, constant automobile traffic, and even if you live near a airport, Again, those are the people, especially in urban areas, that are going to be affected by pollutants. So, like you said, it's very, very important for people to really be cognizant of the fact of the soil, what is being sprayed 
upon in soil, but also what is it that the particles of, of that we're breathing within our air, which are both um, environmental things that we need to discuss and talk about within communities, especially municipalities. Yeah, I've also heard you say that it, food is just connected to everything, right? It's <sighs> It's not only our health and the environment, but our education, our class, our race. And if we want to be good advocates for a better food system, we've got to address all of these things. And you said take an intersectional approach. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Because when I first started growing food, you know, um, my concentration was growing food. I wanted to, you know, the grass, the, to grow the best tomatoes and the best collards. And while I was in my community, what I was finding is that there was so many social issues. I'm in the garden and I'm hearing people having problems with asthma and have no health insurance. I hear people that, you know, the rent is so high and they have 10 in a family. Um, they couldn't afford decent housing. I heard people talking about overcrowding in school. And so, and I heard people saying, you know, I have type, type two diabetes and hypertension, but I don't have insurance. And so all of a sudden by just being in that garden, just focusing on food, all of a sudden I saw how it sort of intersected so many social issues that were surrounding me. And then I said, wait a second, I just can't be focusing on growing food because there was such an intersection that was happening, social issue that was happening around me and how even food was affecting all those different points. And so for me, it really brought to the forefront, you know, when the people, people would say, oh, the food system is broken, and, you know, and it needed to be fixed. And at one time I was drinking that Kool-Aid and I used to believe that, but I said, no, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. You know, it's, it's, it's based on race, it's based on class, you know, it's, it's, it's based on economics. A lot of things is, is based on. And so I really started to um, look at food, but also look at food in a way of, of organizing. And so for me, it's more than just growing food is really looking at the impact that food has on social issues in my, in my community. Um, and I will continue to, to advocate for that. So there's a movement for food sovereignty now. Can you explain what that means to people who haven't heard that term? Okay, first of all, we're going to talk, I guess we'll talk about food justice and food sovereignty because again, those terms, I tell people those terms mean nothing. They're being co-opted okay. because if you're really talking about food sovereignty, you really have to talk about this transformation, this actual uh, action steps that you have to take. Because when food sovereignty is really getting people who have been who have been marginalized with people who have power over um, preventing them from owning their own land, owning their own um, way of living, owning the right for them to grow food, to save seeds. And so a food sovereignty is, is that ownership, is that ownership for people who have been marginalized to take back that power so that in essence, they control how they live, where they, um, how they live, where they eat, all those things when they're talking about sovereignty. And also we need to give credit to where did that come from? It came from the global South. It came from in indigenous and peasant uh, farmers who for so long have been fighting for that right to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. And another thing about food sovereignty, which is so, so important, because if you look at the food system for so long, especially here in the West in a capitalistic society, that has been very extractive. And what food sovereignty wants to make sure is that Everybody has a say uh, within that community and that the resources uh, that are that are made within that community stays within that community, building social capital and communal wealth. And so you've also used the term food apartheid. I'm wondering if you could explain that one. Oh, boy, you opened up a can it's, of worms because it's better than food desert, which is oh, what I learned. please. Uh, yeah, you learned it. I learned it, too. And it's like, wait a second. You're talking about me. You're talking about my community. You're talking about where I live outside of term. First of all, you don't even live in my community and using an outside term to 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 denote, you know, the inability for us to have food, access to food. And so um, looking back, I said, wait a second, you're missing the point because you're talking about a locale, but you're really not talking about the heart of the problem when you're talking about food. And so I coined the term food apartheid because, first of all, when you say food apartheid, people listen. 
you're listening. It's like what 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 is that? What is apartheid doing? Really, it's really talking about the, the oppressive behavior in the food system. And I wanted people to peel back the food, the layers of the food system, to look at how it impacts along race, how it impacts along economics, and how it uh, impacts along uh, demographics. And have and people start having that hard conversation around our food because. Prior to that, when you said food deserts, you know, it's more like statisticians looking at and said, okay, so, you know, these are communities that don't have a supermarket or don't have access to food. And I tell people, yes, we do have access to food. If you really want to talk about a food desert, first of all, the desert, people talk to me, the people in the desert, they do have food, but we do have food. We have the junk food, the processed food, the fast food. So what we don't have are healthy food options. And so... Let's talk about the reality within our food systems of the haves and have not. Because at the end of the day, fresh, healthy food and clean, healthy water are both human rights. Absolutely. And why? Like, why is that food cheap? Why is that food more available? Oh, it's why it's because it can be dumped on. It can be dumped on people who feel that they're getting food, but it has no nutritional value. Um, you know, when the government first talked about farm subsidies, it was supposed to help the farmer. But now it's becoming like a cash cow and people and big ag, industrial ag is just saying, you know what? We have a process now that we can take a lot of um, commodity foods and make it so it's cheap and pour it into communities that feel that feel that it's less for them to buy something that's cheap, you know, instead of something that's expensive. And so, again, you know, being brainwashed, I would say whitewashed um, in some respect to thinking that cheap food is healthy food when and when in fact it isn't. It's, it's, it's killing us. It's, it's, it's making us sicker and sicker. Yeah, I remember hearing a doctor who, you know, went through years and years of medical education and he just said a calorie is a calorie. You know, he heard me talking about my organic food and, you know, it's just that mindset that, you know, you just need calories in order to be healthy is so off. And we just have such a long way to go in teaching, you know, the smartest people are doctors that are supposed to be taking care of us. You know, that nutrition is important. Yeah, you know, my prior profession was um, in the medical profession. And so I used to ask that question all the time. Why is it that um, to treat diabetes, um, to treat hypertension, obesity was always through medication and not through a prescription of fresh fruits and vegetables, of diet? And a lot of it boils down to to the pharmaceutical companies and who's being paid. Um, I, you know, I can always imagine a day whereby um, the hospitals are out of business, the pharmaceutical companies are out of business, um, food pantries and soup kitchens are out of business because we're starting to live healthy lifestyle. And again, we have to look at uh, the food system in essence is a business. Uh, someone is making money on the backs of, 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 poor, um, of poor people. I always said that because um, if that wasn't um, true, then you wouldn't see hospitals and pharmaceuticals companies making billions and billions of dollars. So I'm a young kid. I live in a place where there's a food apartheid. I don't have access to land, but I want to farm. I want to grow vegetables. I've got a green thumb. What, what do we have to do to help that kid succeed? Well, you know what? I tell people, first of all, I mean, if you don't have land, you know, um, and you live in a city, first of all, I always tell people, you know, ask a neighbor that may have some, may have a front yard or a backyard. A lot of religious institutions and uh, public institutions also have land. Ask, you know, ask if you can tend uh, a neighbor's backyard, especially the elder, the elderly. Now, I remember as a physical therapist, I had patients who, you know, had strokes. And I would see their backyard and I said, Ms. Washington, look at my backyard, it's full of weeds. And I would go in there and I would clean it out. And I said, ding, an idea. What it would take for young people or people just to come in and help, you know, a lot of our elders who have have homes and um, have backyards and no longer can take care of them. And so 
there are ways for people to still get involved, even if you don't have land. Um, you can always volunteer, always find um, partial work on a lot of farms and a lot of gardens. I think the biggest thing is to ask. I think a lot of us um, don't really put our hopes and dreams out uh, in the open. Uh, I had a, I was on a, a, um, a call this morning and it was about really, you know, dreaming big. And so for those of you out there young who say, you know, I can't find land, you know, and I want a garden, and I want a farm, put it out to the universe. I mean, that's how, believe it or not, that's how we got rising root. That's how we got rising. That's how we got our land because, you know, we would go to seminars and workshops and other people were getting land and we weren't getting land. And so I happened to continue to just put it out, put it out. And someone heard me and said, here's a telephone number, call this number and the rest is history. So folks out there, young people, especially with the stars in your eyes and you want to farm, let me give you some advice. First of all, farming is hard work. It's <laughs> spiritual work. It's hard work. Secondly, try not to farm alone. It's best if you can farm in community. And third, you know, really, really understand exactly what you want, where you want to go. And lastly, put it out in the universe that you want land to farm because someone might hear you and get you that land. Yeah, I think about my own journey and I did that and um, it was Chris Newman that pointed out to me that that there was privilege in that. I had um, a friend who said, you know, I've got land in my front yard, you can farm it. And in, it was in a wealthy white community that had a, you know, booming farmer's market, you know, close to town. And I started to think about you know, I always thought I had this struggling landless farmer story. And then I started to think about the connections that got me to where I am. And I think I think we need to do more of that. We, we need to acknowledge that it was probably easier for me than it might be for someone who didn't have those connections. For sure it was. And, and just try to figure out, you know, I love putting it out there in the universe and just keep telling people what you want to do. And, and hopefully we can kind of cross, you know, into different communities and figure out how we can help each other get there. And believe it or not, a lot of black and brown folks got land. Let me tell you something. A lot of our history is from the South, the, migrate, the great migration from the South. And a lot of us left that land behind. So a lot of us still have land in the South. A lot of us come, a lot of us still come from Caribbean countries and there's land there. So what I try to tell people is, wait a second, because now young people are starting understanding the power of land ownership and they want to go back to the land. And so what I try to preach too is like, wait a second, you sit down with the family and explain to them how important that land is. Because for so long, we've gone away from the land. I think that was our biggest mistake, going away from the land thinking that farming was slave work, you know, and as a result, letting that land just stay there, not paying taxes or the, having the land being forced, forcibly taken away from us. And so now I speak to young people and they say, yeah, you know, we got land in the South. You know, we got land in Jamaica. We got land in the Caribbean. We got land in Puerto Rico. We got land in Dominican Republic. I tell them, hold on to that land. You want to farm? Hold on to that land because that's your legacy. That's your power. And so, believe it or not, I just got a call yesterday of a young man. A friend of mine called me and says, Karen, I got a young man. His grandfather gave him three acres of land in North Carolina. He doesn't have any farming experience, but he's taking his brothers and sisters and they're going down there. Can you talk to him? And it's so it's like it's not it's not always about white privilege because they're are black and brown people that still that have land in their family and so now it's like okay sitting down with the grandparents the great-grandparents and say you know what it's time I want access to that land so I can farm a different total narrative than when I was young and if I would say I want that land to go farm you know it's like you wouldn't even mention that but now young people have the courage now to go to family members and say I want to farm because now the narrative of farming is is changing within the black and brown community where they know that farming and land access is powerful.
Well, that's a tribute to you, I'm sure, and, and many others. I mean, I, I think that it's got to be complicated. I remember hearing Leah Penniman say, you know, she was reading Elliot Coleman's book and she related, but she thought, you know, where, what is my story in all this? And, and there's a story of oppression here in relation to land. And how do I kind of overcome this? Yeah, I mean, let me tell you something. In 2008, I went to Santa Cruz. This is this program called CASFIS um, out in Santa Cruz, California, which is a program, the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food System, where you learn about how to grow organically. And I remember, even though I had been gardening for a while, I remember the first day going out and seeing these vast acres of land and it hit me that trauma surface that trauma surface that am i doing the right thing do i belong is it true about slavery all those internal things start to surface and i said karen you got to go to the land go to the land and put your hands in the soil and that's what i did i went to the land because i had to meet my fear i went to the land I put my hands in the soil and I felt that connection of belonging that changed my life. That changed my life because I think listening to those stories that have been embedded in our heads as black and brown young men and women growing up about, you know, land being slave work and farming being slave work. You never you, I didn't know that somehow was still embedded inside me until I was confronted and looking at that land and saying to myself, doubting myself if I belong. And it wasn't until I put my hands in that soil, then I felt that connection of, 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 of belonging. And, right, and when I tell young people, especially when they come to our farm, take off your shoes, take off your shoes and socks so you can, so you can your feet can feel the, the soil. Take your hands and put your hands in that black dirt. So it can feel that connection because I think that's really powerful. I think that's what we're missing is that connection to Mother Earth with our feet planted in soil, with our hands planted in soil to see that nature human connection is so, so powerful. And that changed my life. Yeah, on my farm, we'd probably step on a lot of thistle, but I can't <laughs> I completely get it. I can't go barefoot on my farm. <laughs> No. That's beautiful. I, I love that. And it's it's true. And there's something about the smell of dirt after the rain. Mm -hmm. You know, there just it changes depending on what's going on out there and being in connection to all that. It's it's why I love doing it. it you're you miss that when you're you're not gardening, you know, you just miss that connection to what's going on. Yep. So I want to talk about Black Lives Matter because I'm I'm so excited. Uh that it's happening. I just, I feel empowered by it and, and hope that it continues. And I get frustrated when white people will have a, a friend, a black friend who, you know, rose out of the, you know, from being poor, rose out of poverty and it's their success story. And it's like, see, I have this friend and they did it. And, you know, it, that's what this country's all about. What aren't they understanding about the need for this movement? Just the fact that we have a leader that is going to say they're going to come into your suburban neighborhoods. Wait a second. Who is they? You know what? We're supposed to be the United States of America where everybody is equal. But when you start using they are coming into your neighborhoods, they are taking your jobs right then and there. When you start saying they there is a problem because there's two worlds. And I want to know when people say they, who is the they? Because you know exactly who you're talking about when they say they come into you, take your jobs and they come in and take you into your neighborhoods. They're going to come, you know, to strip your way of living. And so I want in order for the change to happen that we're seeing at this moment, white people have to step up and condemn and shut down racism. They have it, the voices, especially those with power and privilege. They're the ones that have to be more vocal in this movement of like black lives matter. They have to be at the forefront saying black lives matter. This is what we're going to do for change. And the thing about it, 
this is so systemic. People are thinking about a quick change. You know, it's going to, you know, it's going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. Donations are fine, but donations are different than investment. Donations, you're going to give money and that's it. And you feel, oh, I gave, you know, to the cause. I feel, you know, because I gave to the cause now. I understand what Black Lives Matter. But no, investments means that you are in for the long haul, that you are not only donating, but you're fixing, help to fix the problem of systemic racism. We're not out of the woods yet. I mean, it's good that it's a moment in time where people are starting to look within their organizations, the food and farming organizations, especially food and farming. I, you know, I just can't this idea in my head where we are so excited as farmers to see diversity in flowers, see diversity in plants, see diversity in animals, but yet we don't have that same, that same thirst of, of, of seeing power and, and equity equal within our own people. And I just, I just can't, I just can't understand it. I can't understand to be in a room of an organization and everybody is white. Everybody in the upper echelon is white. The boards are white, but yet you work in a industry, a system of food and farming that has diversity but yet your own organizations are not diverse. And so um, that's a problem that I have, you know, because don't tell me about, you know, injustice when your own organizations are all homogenized. Onika Abraham stood up in a room of white people at the first, I mean, predominantly white people at the first Real Organic Project Symposium and pointed that out. And I can't imagine how, how brave that was to do that. I, I, I don't know if I could do that. And, and I, I guess I'm wondering if you can um, maybe describe, you know, just what it, what it takes to do something like that. Um, yeah. And, and I, I'm, I'm frustrated that she even had to do it, frankly, but. Um, so uh, I, was at, I was asked to be a keynote speaker for this organization, um, a farmland organization. And I'm sitting there, my, uh, my keynote was in the afternoon. So I sat there in the morning and I'm waiting for people to come in that look like me. So it's now afternoon, no one is coming and look like me. And the whole time I sat there, I heard everything framed around the existence and theories of white people. Never mention anything about indigenous properties, indigenous knowledge, black people knowledge. I sat there. Then they talked about resources, how access to land, access to animals. And then I think what happened is when the person that one of the speakers was talking about diversity and how important it is. And then he ended, yeah, so good that we need to have the, the diversity in our cattle. I did. I, so when it, when it, so when they asked me to come up and introduce me, I put my papers down and I said, I cannot go on with the um, prepared keynote because I'm looking at this room and I'm invisible. I'm looking at this room and I listen to your all morning long talk about food and farming around a reference, a white privilege. Where are the blacks here? Where are the, where are the, where are the people of color in this room? You talk about farming as if we don't exist. Your framework on farming, your knowledge of farming, never once did you include what my people have done when it comes to food and agriculture. You never even thought about so many people, so many black and brown people who are yearning for land, but you have the ability to give your white people access to land. There was silence. You know, people came yeah, because, see, when you're in a bubble and you live in a community that everyone looks alike, you don't have that privilege of reality of how it is outside of your world. And I tell people time and time again, if you really, really want to know 
You really want to think, walk into the shoes of, of food and social justice? Then you've got to get out of your comfort zone and go into poor neighborhoods or marginalized communities of color and see how they live. Go into their supermarkets and see the food. Go into their neighborhoods and see how they live. See if garbage is picked up. See overcrowding in big apartment buildings where the elevator doesn't work. See parks where they can't even go and, and, and have a good time because it's full of garbage. Go and see how people who are citizens of these United States are living like they're in a third world country. It's important now, since we've had this pandemic, that it's affecting a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people who once felt that they had that power and privilege have now come down a peg because now they have joined the ranks of essential workers and people that are on food lines and soup kitchens and food pantry lines who no longer have a job. And so reality is starting to set in from all people who have once had power and privilege to understand what it is to no longer have a paycheck, no longer be able to pay your bills, your rent. People are starting to feel that pinch. Well, folks, wake up because a lot of us have been living like that for centuries. Paycheck to paycheck or homeless or living on with assistance. And so the reality is, is again, people have to be able to appreciate and feel the essence of how others live. And we are supposed to be in the greatest country in the world, but yet we have so, so many problems, so many divisions that we need to work through. And so when it comes to Black Lives Matter, it doesn't matter for a day. It doesn't matter for a week. It doesn't matter for a month. It doesn't matter for a year. It matters all the time. And until people understand that we're part of the human race, there's one race, and that's the human race, then we need to treat each other with equity and dignity. And that is something that people have to work on. I wonder um, if the best way to break through is um, a little bit more like a change in our education system. I mean, I had to kind of search on my own through the teachings of Leah about redlining. I had no idea that that was even a thing. Um, how, how do we kind of tell the story of how it really happened? I mean, it has to go so deep into our educational system. I mean, are we going to be able to do that? Forget about, I didn't learn anything about farming from my educational system. I didn't learn anything about organizing from my educational system. I went into the community. I went into the trenches. I listened to people. I attended meetings. You know, I attended workshops. I went into the trenches. I went into communities to listen to what people, you're not going to get the essence of what is happening from school in a book. People need to get out of their comfort zone and go into communities that they know nothing about and sit and listen. Listen to what people are doing in terms of organizing around health, around housing, around education, around the environment. You know, we talk about climate change. You know, we talk about climate change in a way does. And we know the importance of climate change. But do you think that that really is traveling down to a person who has no heat or hot water? Doesn't know where the next meal is going to come from? And so, you know, we, we talk in elitist terms and we talk into terms of ideals when we really need to find out how does climate change really impact to that person that's on the street sleeping on a bench. You know, and, and, and so we got to be very cognizant of how we um, address certain things that are paramount. Yes, climate change is, 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 is paramount. Yes, even eating healthy organic food is paramount, but it doesn't resonate with people whose whole life is, 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 is being held down because they don't have 
the essential of human resources to survive. And so, you know, I go in these, you know, these workshops and these webinars and I sit there and I hear, you know, people talking about all these important things and I know their importance. And then I say to myself, how do I go back to my community and make them understand how important these things are when they're just trying to survive and they're in a world where the system is not working for them, not working for them. You're saying go to school, get a job and doors will open. Well, you can get a, you can go to school and get a job and the doors not, not will always open for others. And so we need to, again, understand at this point in time, there are two worlds. I'm telling you, there's two worlds. And if you don't believe it, you got to go out of your comfort zone and you got to ask the question, why are these people continuing to walk and march in the street day in and day out? There's got to be a reason. The fact is, is that we're at a point in time in history, we're not going back. We're not going back to the way things are. A change has to happen and a change is going to come. It's inevitable. Change is going to come. How that change looks, it depends on who is going to join in and fight for humanity or who is going to still allow the status quo of, 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 of inequality to continue to exist. So there's two ways. Are people going to jump on a movement of diversity and inclusion or they're going to stay in a movement that is segregated and oppressive? And so, I mean, that's where that's where it's headed. That's where it's headed. That's where this country is, is headed as it becomes more brown. As the country becomes more brown, it's up to people to either embrace it or be left behind. I'm I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about what you're focusing on now, where where your work is going. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm focusing along with uh, Onika and Leah. So um, I think the next step in our movement, you know, we're talking about food justice and food sovereignty. Now we're emphasizing on communal wealth and what that looks like. I think um, for so long, um, black people have been out of building communal wealth within that community. You know, we've been labeled poor, marginalized, and we have to uh, refrain from having outsiders use those terms to define who we are as, as community because there's a richness in our community of self-reliance and, and self-sufficiency. And so um, we're working on starting a Black Pharma Fund. And the Black Pharma Fund is specifically in New York state. And so like, when you're like, why, why a black farmer fund? Because out of 57,000 farmers in New York state, only 139 are black. Out of the billions and billions of dollars that farmers make, the average farmer in New York state, white farmer makes about $48,000 a year. A black farmer makes minus $910 a year. And so we're starting to look at the inconsistency of inequality when it comes to wealth within the black community and start having those conversations about wealth building that is not extractive, but, but builds on the wealth that we have within our community. And so um, I'm very excited about that. We're starting with community um, discussions um, we have this pilot program going on where for the next month or so, every other week, we'll sit down and start having conversation about what does wealth look like, the history of black wealth. At one time, black people had a lot of land and had a lot of wealth. Uh, what happened to it? What are some of the obstacles that prevent blacks from um, maintaining and holding on to that wealth, what systems in place continue to exclude us, continue to be oppressive, that again, takes the money out of our community. Um, and so having those hard conversations is, has really been enlightening for me. Um, 
the fact that just to hear about some of the black businesses that are that are out there, the history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for one, as a vibrant community and what happened once um, people uh, who didn't have power and privilege uh, thought that black people were getting too high and mighty and couldn't understand um, black people have wealth and they don't have it and burned it down. And so, again, um, trying to look within a community as terms of investing back into the community and looking through a different lens of power. Um, so I'm excited about that. And hopefully uh, next year we'll be able to um, start our first charitable, charitable loan and grant system that will be geared towards black farmers and black businesses in New York State. Uh, hopefully what, we, what we're trying to do is that once we get this black farmer fund up and running, and if we've done all the work that we can take it and say, here, Detroit, here, Baltimore, here, Oakland, here, Philly, we've done the work, take it, run with it. Because again, we need to have those systems in place and that education in place about what black wealth looks like. We're not going to get it in a textbook, but we are going to get it from within our community. So I'm excited about that. So you kind of envision it being like a series of chapters that, you know, you, they can replicate the model in, in different cities? Definitely. Definitely. We've, we, you know, right now we're doing the hard work. We're doing the plus and minuses. Um, but eventually, yes, it'll be replicated within those communities that for so long have been deemed powerless that will become powerful. Why do you think um, the organic certification process is so exclusive to people of color? Uh, because organics itself has been the, the whole word organic, the whole elitist. And I think when I think when it started out, I'm pretty sure the intention wasn't about, you know, organics being elitist. I think when um, organic certification and, and farmers going to organic, it was a way of controlling the narrative around the importance of soil fertility, uh, of, of the intention of, of really monitoring the soil and how we grow things intentionally. But again, as politics and the public gets a hold of anything, it then becomes divisive and it then becomes, it, it, it then becomes a way of dividing people of the haves and have-nots. Because in essence, if you tell a lot of people of color about organics, they'll tell you it's white people food. Well, that's white people because, again, um, we don't talk about the cost and value of food within our communities, especially uh, communities of color where we're surrounded by a subsidized charity-based charity food system where food is dumped into our communities and essentially free. And so even within my community, where I run my farmer's market in the Bronx, I have to talk to my customers about the cost and value of food um, that is not free, that the reason why it costs a certain amount is because I'm the farmer, I need to get paid, there's labor that's attached to that produce, there is um, money that I have to pay for tolls and gas, there's rent that I have to, there's a lot of things that are attached to that maybe $2 carrot or $2 beet that you have to pay, but it's having those hard conversations about the cost and value of food. And so with organics, what has, had, what has happened is that people with power and privilege has, la has latched on to that and has owned it in such a way that, again, the price is high and they're willing to pay that high price. And as a result, it's become elitist. And what it has done is it's left behind the people that need, need it the most, that need that healthy food the most, but at a high price. And so at Rise Root Farm, what we try to do is at least make sure that, yes, there's a cost and a value for that food, but everyone should have a right, a, a right to, to pay a fair price for that food. And so, um, and that's something that the organics and organic, you know, really has to, to, to sort of talk about how the term organic, organic has been co-opted, like food justice and food sovereignty in a way that has really made it very, very elitist. And it doesn't, the value doesn't trickle down to the people that need that food the most and has become, <clears throat> you know, for rich people. The rich, only rich people can afford food that's organic uh, and that's healthy. And it leaves out so many other people that really need that food. So 
be very, very careful how we, you know, communicate the work that we do um, and uh, making sure that, you know, everyone has that right no matter what. Because at the end of the day, folks, as farmers, what happens if we don't sell our food at a food at our farmer's market, right? It, 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 it comes back to the farm. Yeah. Well, I always, as a farmer, I would, I was annoyed with a lot of the nonprofits that would come to the farmer's market and want free food and I would want them to pay for it. And so I'm wondering, like as a business model, what, what can I do as a farmer to be more aware of where my food is going in a way that keeps me farming still? Again, going, so if you, if you have a, so you have perfect example. So you said that the nonprofits wanted the free food. And it's like, what you need to say is like, you know, I need to go visit your, I need to go and speak to your nonprofit, to your organization, because they need to understand why the food is not free. Again, having those conversations within the community, we don't have that conversation with the community. How do you have a conversation with communities when for a given food has been dumped in? Food pantry and soup kitchens give away food like it's crazy. This is um, before the pandemic. And so now you're asking people who already got free strawberries and potatoes to ask now you're going to ask them to pay for it. And so that's what I was up against. Um, starting my farmer's market in the Bronx 18 years ago. It was like, or trying to start a CSA. It was like, why, why are we paying for this? <laughs> We get it free. And again, going into my community and having them understand that there's a, there's, it's me. You're supporting me. It's a cost and value to that. Come to the farm or come to the garden and see what it takes to grow that food. What it takes to come down from upstate to pay tolls, you know, to, 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 to put gas, to buy boxes, you know, crates seeds, all those things, and have that hard conversation, which we don't have. And so because I've had that conversation with my community, they're willing to pay. And in some instances, they're not, you know, they can't pay. And if they can't pay, you know, I understand. We'll still make sure that people are fed. But the bottom line is that our food is not free. And I have to, you know, and I have to educate people um, with that. And again, we don't have those conversations. So I would suggest that when a nonprofit says that, then you say, I need to speak. I need to come to your community and I need to have that conversation about the cost and value of food. So people understand. Yeah. I'm looking at some of the statistics and it's like 98% of the land is owned by white predominantly men, how do we shift this to get more in balance? Because we have to, again, the truth, you're not going to get it in the books. Globally, who are the farmers? Women. Women. <laughs> Hello? Yeah. Women. Again, you're not going to get in it until we shout and t- out to the rafters, until we start talking about our stories. We don't talk about our stories as women. We don't talk. That's our weapon. Our weapon is for us to tell our stories. Because once you tell your story, people have pulled power over you, sit down and they start to listen. That's our weapon. That's our ammunition as women. Tell our stories. Go out and continue to tell our stories. Tell the truth. The majority of Farmers in the world are women. What we don't, what we don't have as women, access to land, capital, technology, all in the hands of a few white men, companies, and we need to change that. And the change is going to come. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. You're quite welcome. I know you're a busy woman. Thank you for giving me an hour. Yeah. I moved. I'm, I'm changed. And I hope I get to do it again. Continue to ask those hard questions. Continue. Okay. All right. Okay, I will. Okay. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 32. Please join us next time for an interview with Dartmouth Labor History Professor and author of We Are All Fast Food Workers Now, Annalise Orlek. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. Mm-hmm.